you believe it's nearly Christmas? I, ca I can't because I feel like it's still March 2020. I feel like time basically stopped. Yeah, and yet even though somehow this year functionally just did not happen and we didn't get to do anything that we wanted to do, somehow it's going to be Christmas really soon. Yeah, well, we should at very least do a Christmas special, shouldn't we? I think we should try. I think maybe it could be a bit less self-indulgent than last year, but but still quite self-indulgent, I well, think. Yes. Well, yes! Why, yes! Shall we then? Come on, Rosie. No, I say that. Shall, shall we then? Yes. <laughs> Come on, Rosie. Woof, woof. Trailer trash or else in HR. If you hear a name I mention, then you better run far. Karen and Gammon talk about salmon. 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 Oh, yeah. Hey, pod hogs. Hello there. My name is Ian Gammon. And my given name is Karen Karen. And what is this podcast the Pud Hogs are listening to, Karen? I think you should stop talking like that. Well, it's Karen and Gammon Talk About Salmon, a podcast in which I, Karen, and you, Gammon, talk about salmon in a desperate bid to make something work out of a passing joke we made a few episodes back. We'll talk about the form, function, future, and history of salmon. And Will that work, though? I mean... The form of salmon is a salmon, and the function of salmon, well, what's that? Well, let's just try it, all right? Let's give it a go, don't be negative. I am Karen, and I'm on Christmas Eve, I make gammon for the family because my husband likes it and he won't eat foreign muck. We both voted Brexit. On Christmas Day, after I've straightened my hair, I serve salmon as a starter before we have a lovely Christmas dinner with gravy, but not ethnic gravy, like you see on the Sainsbury's advert, which I have complained about, British gravy. And I'll be doing something similar, but after my dinner, I shall be watching the Queen's speech. God bless Her Majesty. I can't wait until she's sovereign again after we leave the EU. I actually dislike salmon, as I will not eat vegetarian food. Oh, that is so rude. I had to insult three supermarket workers just to get my salmon, and then I had to speak to the manager, because they were really rude about me buying eight packs of toilet roll, and I reported them all. And they were also standing too close to me, and I shouted them about that. And I also do not believe in vaccination. I also do not believe in vaccination, as I think it's the same as thalidomide. However, I do think that people who are, who are economically productive should get it first and not gays, ethnics or lesbians. Joe, where are we going with this? Yeah, no, it won't work, will it? Um, how about this? We could broaden the remit and talk about other things that rhyme, because I do think it was a good thing when we said Cameron and Gammon talk about salmon. I don't want to waste that, so... Maybe we could think about other things that rhyme with Cameron and Gammon. We could talk about Hamon Serrano. We could talk about Michael Gambon. We could talk about Philip Hammond. We could talk about Salmonella. Salmonella? <laughs> Why would we do that? Well, I don't know. Um, I was talking to my relative that I've mentioned before, the one that's interested in hyper-reality and is a listener to the podcast. And I was saying that we were trying to think of a way to do this to make the most of that passing joke. And she suggested you could talk about other things that sound like Karen and Gammon. I just think the rhyming thing is too good not to do anything with, but... I don't know, maybe it's like when somebody thinks of the name of a sitcom first and then tries to think of the sit and hopes that the com will come later. Like Ian Karen and Ian Gammon are two men. They are very different, but when forced to share a flat, they frequently find they have more in common than they thought and that kind of thing. And also salmon. 
Um, I stole that joke from a Christmas annual of Leon Herring's 90s hit show, Fist of Fun, by the way. What do you think we should do? Well, we haven't really thought about the Karen and Gammon angle yet, have we? We could think about what a Karen and Gammon is, I suppose, more generally. You just think of a possible connection, though, between our Karen and Gammon idea that's currently a bit of a non-starter and Christmas. Do you want to hear what my idea is? Um, okay, is it connected to satire? No, but it is connected to Karen, Gammon, Salmon and Christmas. Okay. You know, in, in the Christmas Carol is about uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And you know, the, are you familiar with the song Ebenezer Good? Yes. Well, Ebenezer's the link, and that also, that's got a lyric about salmon in it, hasn't it? There's salmon in Ebenezer Good. Yeah, got any salmon sorted. Ha, 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 ha. He's a good, he's a good, he's a good, he's a good. Oh, what a carry on. Ha, 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 ha. Got any salmon sorted? That's good. Yeah. Is there anything in it about gammon? No, no, no. Well, it's fucking useless then, isn't it? <laughs> do you know what's, do you know what's really funny and clever about that song? What's that? It's like it's saying that the drug ecstasy is good. Did you know that? That's the hidden meaning in that song. <laughs> I did. I think everybody knows. Yeah. Go easy on old Eza. He's a real proud geezer. And he goes by the name of Ebenezer Good. Ah. Maybe we should get back on track and just talk yeah. about what Karen is and what a gammon is. Yeah, we could just explore the idea of the Karen and the gammon um, because, you know, it's a Christmas special, isn't it? And um, we can do what we like. It's our fucking podcast. So we could do that. And then we could talk about some other satirical things like satirical books later in the show. So gammon, what are you? So I'm a gammon. I'm a man with right-wing politics who is white, but I'm flushed puce with the righteousness of my anger at snowflakes, liberals, political correctness and young people. That, that renders me puce. I have a large, shiny face reminiscent of boiled ham. I probably drive a Nissan Qashqai. Karen, what are you? I am a woman with a short, shortish bob that's sort of shaved up at the back and very, very rigid in its structure. I like to complain to managers and sometimes I like to go on and on about not wearing a mask. But sometimes, paradoxically, because I am a paradox or perhaps I'm just stupid, I complain about people breaking lockdown rules and I report them. I'm full of my own self-importance. When I'm American, I'm relatively economically privileged and the nature of my complaints is often racist. In the UK, I'm more likely to be upper working, lower middle class. I'm anywhere from mid 30s to early 50s. Um, in England, I probably drive something like a Ford Fiesta, maybe a Fiat 500, but I really aspire to something like a Range Rover Evoque. Gosh, you sound awful. I really, really am awful. <laughs> we yeah. both sound like we've done very badly on a topical BuzzFeed quiz as well, don't we? We're reading out our answers. I'm a Karen, yeah. what car am I? So, well, what do you think about this Karen and Gammon business? I don't like it. I, <laughs> I think Gammon's kind of had its moment, hasn't it? So Gammon seemed to emerge as a term. I don't people might want to correct me on this, but sort of round about the 2017 general election. And it was kind of shorthand for anti right wing kind of pro-Brexit, anti-Corbyn male voters of a of a certain type and that their whiteness and their flushedness gave rise to did somebody say like oh look at all of that gammon mm. um, and it became a thing for a while whereas karen has taken off perhaps in the last year or so in particular because i can remember my kids saying something probably about five years ago like about can i see the manager haircuts and I asked about that and then like found out about the whole Karen thing. But that has kind of intensified a bit this year. So, yeah, what, what do you think about Karens and Gammons? They're both chimeras, really, aren't they? They're kind of caricatures, folk figures with, with characteristics that I think very quickly a lot of people can describe. I'm not saying that there aren't people who exist like them in reality, but mm. it's very, and you see it particularly with Karen, it's a quick way of shutting down anyone who's a woman by saying, like, don't be a Karen. Or Elon Musk, who was called Space Karen, wasn't he recently about some specious complaint that he made um and somebody somebody addressed him on twitter as space karen but that's like saying big girls blouse isn't a gendered insult because people use it to boys they perceive to be effeminate it is still it is still misogynistic and and sexist but yeah because i when i first looked up that thing about the can i see the manager haircut my immediate response was like oh god yeah that that is i, I get that that's quite funny but then I think it's got more unpleasant in this in the last year and I agree that particularly in the UK it's classist as well as sexist um, and ageist I do think that's true mm. but when I first heard it I, I was thinking about this and I was thinking like anybody who's worked in retail or in hospitality 
does recognize those archetypes right when you get complained to or somebody wants to complain above your head that is quite a familiar dynamic and maybe that's why particularly like young people get this and Mm -hmm. and refer to people as Karens because we if you've done any of those jobs you you recognize that type right and then I was thinking that when I did work in a pub I could imagine we would have said like oh there's a there's a right Karen over on table 21 or whatever but then that would slip, wouldn't it, into, you know, when you're bored, like, spot the Karen today, who's the worst Karen we've had in, or the minute any woman says, I'm sorry to bother you, but you seem to be out of loo roll, would it be possible for somebody to restock the loose? It's a short slip for, like, a perfectly reasonable thing that someone says for the yeah. responsibility of fuck off, Karen. The thing that I find interesting and troubling about the Karen slur is its sudden ubiquity. So this sounds, me and my dad, who I'm sure will be listening to this, have an ongoing sort of game that we've been playing for the last 15 years where we both watch Doctor Who and he doesn't he there are always always problems with Doctor Who he doesn't like it as much then will tell me why he doesn't like it and then I always end up defending it even sometimes when I don't think it's good a few months ago he sent me a video of a guy complaining about the current iteration of Doctor Who an American guy on one of those channels that's like why so and so has ruined this tv show and the guy Apparently, it's a running theme in these videos that he refers to Jodie Whittaker's 13th Doctor as Dr. Karen. So one of the main accusations about Jodie Whittaker's Doctor is that she's a social justice warrior. That's that sort of secondary to the fact that she is a woman at all, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so, so people object to her being a woman and they object to the fact that they feel the BBC is slipping in some social justice by stealth. Yes, and I feel like I could do a whole separate podcast about my feelings about that particular accusation and the relationship between Doctor and social justice. I won't get into that now. But being a social justice warrior is the opposite of being a Karen, isn't it? Yes. So calling a doctor Karen just means doctor foreground, she's a woman I don't like. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a way to to dismiss women. And if, if kids shout at a woman who's telling them not to drop litter or whatever, they'll shout, fuck off Karen, where five years ago they would have shouted, fuck off fat bitch. It's yeah. interchangeable, isn't it? And interestingly, my dad absolutely hates, hates Doctor Who Um, and one year when we were there and everybody was going to watch the Christmas afternoon Doctor Who for which we'd only got in from a Christmas afternoon walk about 10 minutes ago and my dad went for another walk so as not to be in the house when Doctor Who was on that's how much he doesn't like Doctor Who so dads and doctors (laughs) we could do that for next Christmas special it's dads and doctors talk about Proctors. We can work on it. We can work on it. Yeah. We'll have more time next year, won't we, to get the Christmas special really slick. But yeah. how do Karens and Gammons fit into satire, do you think? Well, I was going to say, I just wanted to say, I have been called, like, I have a, my colleague who may also be listening to this, although I doubt it, or I share an office with, or I did when we were allowed to share offices. He would often call me a gammon as a, as a recurring joke. So I would say something where I'd be attempt to sort of critique something or suggest that things weren't as cut and dry as it seemed in terms of certain things. I'd be like, well, yeah, it's a little bit more complicated than this rhetoric suggests, don't you think? And then he would always go, okay, gammon. And like, that was a recurring joke that we had. And it, basically it meant it conflated the critique of, or the attempted critique of a dominant discourse that has been easily <laughs> and quickly adopted with being a gammon who has all the traits that we just described. So that's it's just quite funny yeah yeah a lot of a lot of people have been very defensive of the ability to use the term Karen and argued that it's not in any way sexist and it's not a slur and it's I mean just to be clear I don't think Karen I think there was like an exaggeration of people who expressed the viewpoint that they thought that Karen was a bit problematic Mm. then a whole other set of people said I can't believe the Karens are saying that it's a racial slur. I can't believe that that, the most Karen-y thing you can do is object to the term Karen. And they sort of tried to imply that people were saying it was the same as using a racial slur. I don't know if anybody did say it was the same as using a racial slur. I certainly don't think that it is. I don't think it's racist to white women either. Grouping people into notional tribes who all have the same characteristic and therefore, you know, whatever accent, whatever they do, means that you can refer to them as I'm thinking not just Karen Gammon but like Boomer's another one isn't it or like if you just say something or do something someone will hit you with that name and then that characterizes everything that mischaracterizes everything you've said as as being as ludicrous as something that one of these caricatures would do so yeah it's interesting how's it connected to satire well when we were trying to script this section we wanted to satirize the lazy way in which these caricatures are often used for comedy didn't we 
mm. that we've listeners may have noticed we found it quite difficult to signal that we were trying to deconstruct the chimera rather than prop it up so yeah we didn't want you to be laughing at the ha 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 that's what a karen's like we wanted you to be laughing at ha 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 that's that's how juvenile that construction can yeah. be and how it's used which i mean also if those terms have kind of died back a little bit then mm. arguably maybe the most karen thing a karen can do is do a podcast about karens in which they critique the term karen when everybody who isn't a karen knows that karen is no longer a thing exactly and this is a challenge confronted by all of the people we'll be talking about today in some senses because today's our christmas episode isn't it and we're doing consumer advice for christmas yeah mm-hmm. we're going to be exploring three different satirical texts that you can buy if you want we'll talk more about that in a moment but all of them involve the author taking on a comedy character a satirical caricature to express the views in the book which is what we were attempting to do with karen and gammon shall we do the bit where we say what podcast this really is yes what podcast is it really you're listening to blocked and reported no <laughs> this is this is smith and ward talk about satire podcast in which we talk about the form function future and satire in a merciless attempt the form function future and satire smith Warren talk satire about in which we discuss the function form future history and satire of satire in a merciless bid to amass research quantifiable i'm joe wall senior lecturer <laughs> in 19th century literature and it's been a very very long semester um yes so it is smith and wall talk about satire the podcast in my joe wall and you adam smith talk about the form function future and history of satire in a desperate bid to amass quantifiable impact for our research i'm joe wall senior lecturer in english literature 19th century english literature what the fuck are you I'm Adam Smith, a C- Dr. Adam Smith, a senior lecturer in 18th century literature. Come on, Rosie. We do actually have a big bit of news as well, or a little bit of big news. It's Adam and Joe's big bit of news. We're not just an award-winning podcast about satire anymore. In addition to that award, another accolade. Another accolade. I don't know where we're going to put all of these accolades. We're we're an accolade-winning podcast. Um, yes. Yeah, so, what what was the tell tell the lovely listeners about the accolade? We've been selected by Feedspot as being in the top fifteen podcasts about satire in the world. In the world, that is amazing. I would have put us in the top seventeen podcasts about satire, absolute tops. But what is a Feedspot? Feedspot is a content reader based in India designed to, quote, make keeping up with your favourite websites as easy as checking your email. And so whereabouts in the 15 did we come? We were number nine. That is not bad at all, is it? Well, no, ninth in the whole world is amazing. Out of all the podcasts in the world, we are number nine. Yeah, all the podcasts that are about satire in the world, yeah. Um, I'm surprised there are 15, actually. I'm surprised there's more than one. I I did think that that was our USP, that we're the only ones, we're the only two people who do this, but and therefore the best ones. So what what are the other ones? Well, that's interesting, actually, because they're they're mostly satirical podcasts, e.g. podcasts that are doing satire rather than podcasts about Mm. satire. Um, but the eight that beat us, I've actually got li- a list of them here. I thought I could tell you about them and you could tell me if you think they sound like good podcasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, go for it. So number one, the top spot is Friday Night Comedy from BBC Radio 4. That depends. If it's the Now show, then I don't think they should be in. If it's select bits of the news quiz and dead ringers, then okay. Number two, Breaking the News, which is described as a topical comedy panel show that takes a satirical view at the week's headlines. No. I don't like that expression. I think you've talked about this in the podcast before. We're going to take a satirical view of the news. What does that even mean? It means you're just going to say the news and then sort of go like, oh, oh, that Boris Johnson's a bad lot, isn't he? No, I think we don't need any more topical comedy panel shows that take a satirical view of the week's headlines. Enough. What's the next? Consider our knowledge. So the description of this is, this is the best NPR parody that we know of where the news is fake and the jokes are real. So it's a parody of things like This American Life, Serial, Dear White Parents, kind of like a full podcast version of the joke that Adam Buxton does about the Creaky Voice podcast. Um, Okay, that sounds like potentially it's okay. Yeah, I quite like the sound of that. I like the name Consider Our Knowledge because all of those podcasts do, they are quite uh, condescending, aren't they? Yeah, and did you also spot like what the initialism of that would be? Cock. Yes. Very good. Yeah, I didn't notice that. Yeah. Now time 
They are podcasts to educate yourself with, aren't they? The NPR. Yeah. Yeah, so consider an yeah. name. Uh, I just need some research into this because I couldn't work out what it was. The Babylon Bee podcast, which is the podcast mm -hmm. of the Babylon Bee, which is a Christian news satire publication, often considered a conservative alternative to the Onion News. Okay, reserve, I'll reserve judgment on that. I had a quick look at it and I couldn't make head nor tail of it because it's all about American things. Okay. Um, Number five, BSD resistance, a fast-paced, deliriously irrelevant, irrelevant, deliriously irreverent and deliriously immersive political satire. BSD resistance follows the adventures of a Texas mom and her precocious four-year-old son as they are unwittingly drawn into a shadowy struggle between the deep state and its enemies. Give it a go. This one, I like this one because it's covering all the bases in terms of meta tags. Crazy mm. comedy, humor and satire podcast <laughs> by Daniel D. Humorous thoughts and observations about life, marriage, parenting, work, money, religion, and philosophy by Daniel D. Could go either way, couldn't it? Yeah, I feel like a lot of the ones on this, well, this one and the first two, Friday Night Comedy and Breaking the News, are more like, they're more comedy than satire, if that's not terribly elitist, mm -hmm. to say. Um, number seven, China Unscripted. Chris Chappelle interviews Chinese experts and discusses the issues of the day. I don't know why it's satire. Maybe he does it in a satirical fashion. In a satirical way. Satirical Maybe he's not real or something. Yeah, a satirical look at, at China and its experts. Yeah. Number eight, okay. on the left side, from commentary catastrophes to managerial misdemeanors, Jim guides us through a satirical look at the last seven days of football funny. Fuck off. No, not interested. That's one higher than us. No, this that's not right. Like, football gets to be football. It doesn't get to be satirical as well. I'm sick of, like, football getting into everything and ruining it and people football always being, like, privileged over everything else. So even if it's a really good podcast, and I think it's suspicious that he's just called Jim. What's his last name? That strikes me as very dodgy. But, like, no, football isn't funny or clever. And it's certainly not grown up. No, I think we are effectively number eight. Oh, it's really important. We need to get crowds back into the satire. Satire will die if we don't get crowds of more than 2,000 people in. Everybody, this is like actual news, apparently. There must be crowds for the satire. No, why is football so special all the time? Football's toxic, a waste of time, and everybody who likes it is wrong and needs to have a think. It also sounds quite derivative because that's the exact premise of Bob Mortimer's podcast, Atletico Mints. Um, well, I don't mind Bob Mortimer doing it. <laughs> and then number nine, ourselves. Cool. So, yeah. Yeah. So the internet's ninth favourite podcast that is in some way associated with satire, that is quite the accolade, isn't it? What should we do in this episode? Well, as I've already alluded to, it's almost Christmas. So this month, we're going to be offering some consumer advice as we take a look at three recently released satirical books that you may wish to buy for the satire aficionado in your life. Satire aficionado what? Satire aficionado. The satire fan in your life. The satire avocado in your life. <laughs> I think a fish in our day, though, because what, what sort of fish would it be? Salmon. Yeah, so but or you, so you might want to buy them, you might not want to buy them, um, but you might just be interested in hearing us talk about them, and that's absolutely fine. We're here to support you in whatever way we can. Yeah, if you don't want to buy these books, that's absolutely fine. You do whatever you want. We're not the boss of you. You can do whatever you like, as long as whatever you do is in line with Christmas COVID restrictions. Yes, whatever whatever the hell they may be, but um, yes, we're, we're not in charge and we're not trying to sell you anything just want to talk about some satirical things don't we but first a word from our sponsors hey adam what's your favorite department store to visit at christmas time well that'd have to be john lewis and I've been thinking of visiting John Lewis just recently because my football got stuck inside of a tree. What you need is an umbrella, and not just any umbrella, but like a red one in the shape of a heart, and then you sort of push that into the tree. The ball comes down. There is a there is a downside, and I don't know if you experienced this once the ball came down. Like, did you, was there any side effects for you at that point? You didn't become a plasticine boy, for example. Oh yes, that's right, I did. I became a plasticine boy. 
but I was yeah. sad about that because I had a nice coat on that I bought from John Lewis. There is also the issue with the little snowman. Did you have that at all? So sometimes what can happen is then after you become plasticine, a little sort of plasticine snowman can appear and then it will sort of float over the rooftops. At this point, the ball is irrelevant. Don't think about the ball anymore. That's not in the story. But the snowman can kind of then appear in a snowy street and um, it will often get distracted trying to fashion a wheel for a car out of snow, which you would think doesn't work, but they, but also not only is the wheel made of snow, it's also in the shape of a, of a heart. So, but it works, it works. And the reason I think why it works is John Lewis. They're that good that if you had a snow wheel in the shape of a heart, if it was from John Lewis, it would still work. There was something else that happened whilst all of that was kicking off, which I yeah. thought you'd be interested in given your recent history, is that I saw a hedgehog as well. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know whether the hedgehog needed any help, but then some magic pigeons put it on a plane and it flew away. Yeah, that, that can happen. In fact, that is the most sensible thing to do if you see a hedgehog, just um, <laughs> if, you, if you leave it alone, the pigeons will often come and kind of take it away in a plane. What can happen though is that Having already turned into plasticine, you might find everything turns into a cartoon. But as I say, it, it's fine. It's it's John Lewis. Happy Christmas. Never nice. never knowingly undersold or um, under plasticine. Good effort, that wasn't it. Shall we get on with our consumer advice? So the first book to discuss is Titania McGrath's My First Little Book of Intersectional Activism, written by Titania McGrath, who long-time listeners of the podcast will know, is in fact the comedian, satirist, political pundit, Andrew Doyle. And it's the follow-up to Woke, isn't it, which was published, what, 2019? Mm -hmm. Yep, and there's in the second episode of our second season of the podcast, we spoke to Andrew about Woke. So this is the sequel, and it's positioned very much as the sequel. So... Titania is this fictional character who has written Woke and then within a year smashed out this book that says in the blurb. After the success of her debut, Woke, a guide to social justice, radical slam poet and intersectional feminist Titania McGrath has turned her talents to the realm of children's non-fiction. Yes, um, so regular listeners might know we've got an un as yet unbroadcast interview with Andrew, um, which I feel a little bit better now after I started listening to the Adam Buxton podcast about how we keep interviews on file because we don't get around to getting them out as quickly as we might want to but we, we've got all of that ready to go um, or ready to edit I should say um, but for now we'll just kind of focus on the book which is the reason why we were talking to him in the first place but in that interview we talk much more about the detail of how he sees the satire working in this book so we won't we won't spoil that for now we'll release it later but should we have a little chat about the book? Yeah so this book as that blurb indicates actually has a very specific target in one sense which is this trend for, well, I guess what Andrew would describe as woke books aimed at children. But certainly there is that genre, isn't there, of children's book, which has this kind of social justice theme or yeah. ethos. So actually, even though we've got that whole interview, seeing as it is Christmas, here's just a quick clip from our forthcoming episode of Andrew describing his main source of inspiration for the conceit of this text. Because in Woke, there were bits where you could if you had to say ah but that's not ridiculous somebody real has basically said that so you think this is extreme and ludicrous but actually it's based on something real and so that was a kind of extra hidden layer to go into if people wanted to or if they could spot it or yeah. that you could bring out those guns in a sense if you needed to yeah but in the little book direct like you're saying this is the stupid thing this person has done or these are the, is the stupid level of admiration that this person attracts so did it feel like you kind of needed to to name names and talk about actual people yeah kind of partly because it's it's the it's the the structure of the book is based on the goodnight story for rebel girls structure which is uh, you know the, the icons of history who titania loved so i sort yeah. of had to address there's a bit of you know that i mean i do for each one, there's an illustration and a quotation, and about 90% of the quotations are real. And I quite like the idea that people have to work out which ones aren't real and which ones are. Basically, they're all real if they're from someone who's living, because I couldn't get away with misquoting someone, I'd get sued. The one that, although I've misquoted, so the quote that I've attributed to Elizabeth Warren is just an ancient 
North American indigenous proverb. But I think the joke's obvious what I'm doing there, so I don't think she can sue me yeah. for that. And the joke, the, the, the quotation from Nelson Mandela is actually a quotation from March of the Penguins because she thinks he narrated it because, because Titania is racist. Yeah. Right, so this is, what, this is one of the point, points I'm trying to sort of emphasize in this. And that, that's what I imagine might get me into trouble is that she's just so obviously racist. Yeah, <laughs> I think, and that's what I'm mocking. I'm mocking the, the racism there. But yeah, when you're talking about specific people, like firstly, I don't think these celebrities are going to read it. So I, I sort of don't think it matters. Is it conceivable that like Sam Smith could read it and get upset by the chapter on him? Yeah. Am I, am I worried about what a billionaire thinks about? Also, I don't know. My, my sympathy is a bit limited. So more on that in the new year. But for now, yeah, what's important to talk about here? Children's books. Yeah. Alan Partridge has an idea for writing a children's book, doesn't he? Because I think, like Titania, he's got the, the notion that that would be very easy to kind of smash out, that anyone can write a book for children and that it's a nice little money spinner. And you said Fern Cotton as well. So Fern Cotton, for example, has written children's books such as Your Mood Journal. Uh, it's a feelings journal for kids by Sunday Times best-selling author Fern Cotton. And it's all about helping children and promoting mindfulness and how to... Yeah, if it's a journal. Yeah. Yeah. Why wouldn't the kid write the journal? I What's the point of having a journal that Fern Cotton's written for you? Well, I think she... So she's written... So that's why some people might see this as a bit of a, bit of a scam. Because I think mm. she's written the kind of framing of it and the tips and hints. And so she'll explain to you what mindfulness is and everything. And then you, the child, will fill, fill in, in the blank spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. To be fair to her, Titania doesn't do. She's she's written all the pages, so she's she's a harder worker than Fern Cotton potentially. Yes, she is. And there's mm. but there's more specific targets here. So it's the kind of social justice children's book, isn't it? That I mean, one of the great jokes of the book is that it's not really written in a register that would appeal to children, is it? So Titania yeah. makes no concession to the fact that her alleged audience is preteen. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of a mishmash, isn't it, of talking down making no effort to talk down or just sort of intermittently employing like this the sort of fairy tale framework or like you know once upon a time there was a girl called Greta Thunberg or whatever so yeah and it's it's like those books you know the ones that are about Frida Kahlo or Coco Chanel and I think we talk about Coco Chanel with Andrew don't we and how um, you know some of the less savoury aspects of her biography tend to be um, missed out by writers who want to sort of insist on her um, her bravery and her and her cool clothes it's an interesting kind of mishmash of different styles which which is to suggest that this person Titania has, has written the book without really caring about her audience or thinking about what how to how best to communicate with them but is all too aware of the phenomenon in publishing by which writing for children is at the very least perceived to be um, a very effective and easy money spinner. Yeah. Um, so the book is, the different chapters are about different individuals, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. So just to emphasise how inappropriate it is for a child, the first line of the book is, this is a book for aspiring activists between the ages of six months and six years. If you're an adult, kindly fuck off and read something else. As a young person, you represent the next generation of intersectional warrior queens. I make no apologies for using advanced terminology such as intersectional because I refuse to patronise you in the way your parents have done. I know that there is wisdom in youth. As a baby, my first words were, seize the means of production. So it's not only the fact that she's not catering to children, but the suggestion that she's in some sense flying under the radar because if anyone tries to subject what she's saying to legitimate critique, she can say it's not for you, it's for children. Yeah, but as you say, the different chapters are based on different individuals and there's a lot of comedy, isn't there, based on um, who the figures are that, that Titania's decided to write about. And this kind of reminds me of when we were talking about the new spitting image in the last episode and the whole um, hoo-ha about whether it was okay to have a puppet of Greta Thunberg and whether she was an important enough or a powerful enough figure to be the target of satire. And she's one of the people that Titania has dedicated a chapter to here. And I suppose this also speaks to the kinds of critiques that Titania McGrath as a satirical character attracts, doesn't it? Like, is having a chapter on Greta Thunberg punching up or punching down? Like, how do you think the satire is working in that chapter? And th uh, this is something we talk about more in the interview, but just thought because we talked about it in relation to Spitting Image, maybe it was worth pausing on here. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the big differences between 
the first book woke in this one, isn't it? Is that the targets are so specific. But then also it's not it's not Greta Thunberg specifically that's the target. It's the comedy comes from Titania's appropriation of her mm. and and the attitude and expression. So I think that is probably fair. I mean it's it's funny, isn't it, how it, it goes sort of Greta. Mary Whitehouse, Emily Pankhurst, Elizabeth Warren, Nelson Mandela, Joe Swinson. But then you've also got Joseph Stalin in there. What do you think about that? You asked the question. I think it's really interesting. I think um, one of the things we talk about in the interview is that the, the target of the satire here is not Greta herself. It's the way that she's kind of lionised and, um, and thought of as, as untouchable and irreproachable and that kind of slightly potentially unthinking adulation of individuals and is potentially dangerous. I think that's the intention here. But the risk, of course, is that it does look like you're just poking fun at that particular individual. But I think that is that is the line that this text seeks to walk, isn't it? And which Titania McGrath as a satirical character does. But both both are liable to the accusation of, of doing things like that, but both but can be defended. It's a very self-conscious formal parody of a particular genre of book. But, but also there are multiple parodies at work here. So one of the other targets of the parody is contemporary experimental poetry. Do you want to hear some of Titania's poetry? There's a Christmas one that I thought might be... Go on, read, read a bit of that then, yeah. Christmas morning, a trinity. A December dawn approaches, 25thly. Foulish in a hue of festive rancour, the uppity sun retreats backwards and limbid bauble speaking fire into elfin ears, tinsel pricked by two tongues twisting on a reindeer's perineum. We drink the day like a damaged Glaswegian soaking our mock-loving stagnant sherry ringed from the liver of a chattering spouse. Anonymous aunts are wording their slurs and a weeping sh shepherd chews on the maggoty giblets of a fucked robin. We are the turkeys of time and destiny are stuffing. Urchins flee from the Santas, tuminescent lap and the corpulent Laplander slithers into unsuspecting chimneys and disjudges the contents of his toxic sap, bakake with a satin bow. Powerful stuff. Well, it's just, uh, just so, so what I was going to say is that and on one hand, there's that quite really closely observed formal parody, mm -hmm. but then the formal parody, the function of it is to actually enact this broader satirical project where it's critiquing social justice discourse and it's the way that it's used in in society more generally which just reminds me of the 18th century because <laughs> i'm afraid to say it's similar to what the 18th century satirists are doing like so for example john gay's beggar's opera is a satire of the italian opera form mm. but also in critiquing the italian opera form for being opulent and commercially driven and insubstantial He's making a critique of that 24-hour consumer society that's arising in the 18th century as well. And Swift does it in Modest Proposal, which we talk about every episode, don't we? He also does it in The Tale of a Tub. It's a diagnostic parody of 18th century print culture in order to make a bigger point about the state of society more generally. And I feel like that's kind of similar to what Andrew Doyle is attempting here. Yeah, so it's about the way people think about and talk about some of these individuals because they read individuals according to what they need those individuals, the celebrities, to, to represent and to, to mean and frame them in, in those ways. But also people like people on whom Titania McGrath is modelled are essentially kind of lazy grifters who will jizz out any old shit and who, who recognise that it's very easy to or, or think that it's very easy to publish a children's book and who who write badly and inconsistently and don't really have that much sensitive awareness of the audience for whom they're writing so yes I guess it is similar. The problems with Titania's children's book are the problems with Titania's philosophy and approach generally, aren't they? The way that she's always covering her back and making it impossible to verify what she said, but also impossible to critique her because she can always say, well, it's written for children or, you know, blah, mm. blah, blah. So the inconsistency and contradictions in the way she's written a children's book are perhaps emblematic of Andrew's vision of an entire group of people and how they behave. Yes. Pretty interesting satire. Ricky Gervais describes it in the blurb on the back as a beautifully classic satire. And I think in terms of the way the satire functions alone, it, it is pretty classic satire, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's doing doing things that have a, a solid historical satirical precedent, isn't it? Mm. We should say it's been out for a while. Actually, it's not a Christmas book. We've just um... still it's okay. So I think it came out in September. So there's it's pretty topical. Titania's written a poem about the pandemic as well. So yeah, it's not brand new, but it's quite new, and you can hear more about it in a future episode of the podcast. Shall we talk about another 
Christmas book. Yes. Before we get on to this next one, which is called Junji, How to Live the North Korean Way, I think we just have an important message for listeners. And now, a word from our international correspondent. Dear comrades, I'm speaking to you in grave times. It pains me to say that we are in the midst of a crisis, a crisis on a scale that the world has never seen before. An invisible virus is tearing its way across the Western world, a virus which is spiraling out of control, a virus which is reaping havoc with our economies, battering our mental health, widening the chasm between rich and poor, a virus which is stealing our lives and accelerating the privatization of our NHS. The virus I speak of is capitalism. And so, dear comrades, as Christmas draws near, I must inform you that studies from Pyongyang University reveal that this virus takes on a more deadly and contagious form at this time of year. Symptoms include excessive purchasing of unnecessary goods, gluttony on an unprecedented scale, and the commodification of a religion to increase Jeff Bezos's net worth. These are dangerous times. It's therefore paramount that comrades follow the guidelines set out by the Supreme Leader and the impregnable party to combat this virus. Comrades must stay at home. Comrades must shun Western capitalist vices and comrades must look for the resources within themselves to bring them fulfillment and joy. Although this is a testing time of year for many, especially for those who are alone and isolated, know this, that dear leader is here for you. The glorious and immortal general is always watching, always listening. Before I go, I urge you not to sink into despair for a vaccine has arrived. The vaccine for this virus lies in the pages of Juche, which has been certified by party ministers to be the most amusing and entertaining wellness guide to have ever been published. And it can be picked up at all reputable bookstores and public libraries, whether you are showing symptoms or not. And so I urge you, dear comrades, get yourself a copy of Juche, spelt J-U-C-H-E, as soon as you can, so your hearts and minds can be freed from this wretched virus and we can walk towards the socialist dawn that awaits us all. Yours, Comrade Hyunji. Okay, so again, um, as with Andrew Dorr, we've got a much fuller interview with the author. Um, are we going to say his name now or are we going to keep that under wraps until... But anyway, we have interviewed the author of this book and we'll be releasing that early next year. But um, we can have a little general chat about this book, can't we? Which has some, if not the same targets in mind or if not the same most visible targets in mind, does have some parallels with my little book of intersectional activism, doesn't it? It's written by someone called Comrade Hyunji, and it, the book goes to enormous efforts to present this as a real book, um, to the point that when we were sent a copy by the publisher, it included a press release from the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, like a propaganda sheet, basically explaining what the book is. Uh, but it's called Jushi, How to Live Well the North Korean Way, and Jushi is an actual North Korean lifestyle philosophy from which the author of this book, I think we can say who it is because his name's in the back. Okay. Ollie Grant. The author, yeah. Ollie Grant, has basically written this as a self-help book for people who want to live the North Korean way, adopting this Jushi philosophy. And similar to the way that Andrew Doyle targets, well, basically activists' children's books, Ollie Grant's target is the lifestyle book generally, but, but also specifically lifestyle books which sort of have constructed or exploited a particular way of living that, it, that they associate with national identity. So the little book of Hugo would be the main example of that, wouldn't it? Where it's like, Danish people are so much happier than you. Danish people are so cosy. They really know how to wear socks and sit by fires. So you, you kind of badge all of that as, as an achievable thing. Like, so Hugo is a thing that Danish people talk about, but it really kind of took off in lots of marketable, saleable little self-help books in this country a couple of years ago, didn't it? That, that idea of, of cosiness and somehow being a bit, bit Danish along the way. But I think this, this book is interested in, like, where does that stop? Are there, are there countries where you can't do that? Yeah, he talks in the interview, doesn't he, about how the book that tipped him over the edge that made him do this, because he works he works in Penguin, which is where the little book of Hugo, Danish Secrets to Happy Living, was published at Penguin. And he said one day he was asked to package a book or something called, it was about the Russian, how to live well the Russian way. And he thought, is there any country you couldn't do this for? And he thought it'd be hilarious to try it with North Korea. So that was the, the germ of the idea. So again, it's a, another kind of diagnostic parody of that kind of lifestyle format 
and also the fetishization and exportation of a mythologized idea of national identity. So, and it looks beautiful. I mean, it looks like a penguin, one of those penguin books, isn't it? Like Penguin Guide to the Hangover. Or... Yeah, which in turn look like the old ladybird books for, for yeah. children. Yeah, it's it's very committed, isn't it, to presenting itself as a thing that it's pastiching and, and satirizing. So yeah, we'll, we'll have to put an image up somewhere yeah 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 but so it's doing that but then a lot of the comedy in the book arises from comrade hang and g who's come to america he's come to the west to learn about the west and then gone back and written this book and often compares north korea to the things that he's encountered abroad he draws the right conclusions but for the wrong reasons doesn't he at times Sometimes, yeah. 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 So what would an example of that be? On the gender pay gap, he says, after lengthy chinwags with Western human resources, HR officials, I was left warm with rage to learn of the existence of the gender pay gap. Correct. A deep crevasse of prejudice which runs through Western society, discriminating against workers on the basis of a chromosome. This bias is cruel and wrong. It prevents women from achieving their true potential and contributing to the revolution. All good. Workers of the DPRK have never suffered such mistreatment and never will. Our just and egalitarian general ensures that all comrades, men and women, are paid the same. 4,801 a month, roughly $4. A most generous gift from our great and well-endowed leader. Yeah, and there there are other ones like that as well, aren't there? We get into some detail about the potential targets of satire in this book, don't we, in the the book? But I mean, some of it's outright just funny, isn't it? Like, some of it's just... Mm insane like the bit of they have movember it's spelled mao so it's like mao them like chairman mao and stuff it's interesting so the andrew doyle book has got loads of endorsements on the cover for woke so i've already mentioned ricky gervais but then you can sort of map not necessarily andrew's political orientation himself but the the way he positioned has been positioned in publishing so you've got Mm. an endorsement from the times an endorsement from the spectator an endorsement from the Daily Express that are all saying this is a genius spoof. And then <laughs> there's an endorsement from the New Statesman that just says unfunny, which sort of tells you where he's where he's positioning himself. And if the New Statesman doesn't think this is very funny and you think it is, then that, that's where you are in the matrices of all these. Yes, it, it, it helps you to see where your tribe is on this, doesn't it? Yeah. And there's a sort of parody of that kind of endorsement going on in the Juche book, where the endorsements here are from... Pretty Patel, Dominic Raab, Nigel Farage, James Franco, Seth Rogen, and Donald Trump. So, uh, all saying that this is a great book, the Jean-G yeah. book. So it's sort of telling you this is a book that dictators and people on the right who aren't very popular with what now calls itself the centre, that mm. they, they like this book. So this just tells you where it positions itself politically, doesn't it? Because because those are parodies, they're fake. Yeah, I think both these books are very kind of knowing, aren't they, about publishing and how it works and not just publishing, but but about the market for books and the way that that works. I think that's, that's definitely something they have in common, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And you can buy that from Penguin, uh, or it's published by Penguin. I'm sure you can buy it from all reputable booksellers, and the RRP is £9.99 sterling. £9.99. £9.99 sterling should we talk about our third book yes let's talk about the third book um yes so this is dear jane and jericho why he turns away do's and don'ts from dating to death which has some points of comparison doesn't it but also i think some significant differences because i don't think that this book is although they are a satire in in some senses jane and jericho played by um julia davis and vicky perpadine they are sort of satirizing misogynistic agony aunts and advice that blames women it's it's beyond that isn't it it's grotesque what they do like it's meant to be grotesque it's it has more in common with Derek and Clive than it does with Brass Eye so I don't think that this book is trying to kind of pastiche and parody in the same way I think possibly the book even less so seems to me like a pastiche or a parody than their podcast does because their podcast sounds a bit like something that might really exist, but the book is like nothing. Well, I don't know, because I'm not sure, because I think I do largely agree, but then the chapters and stuff, it's laid out like a self-help book, though, isn't it? Like, it is, mm. it is again, it's keying into a similar... There is that market of books that tell you how to live well, and this is... Yeah. yeah I mean, but then, because it's Joan and Jerrica, it reminds me more of, like, when I was growing up, there was a family medical dictionary. I don't know if you ever had one of those, where you'd, like look up the symptoms in this big book and it'll tell you what to do. I'll tell you who did have a book like that. Yeah. The Brontes. 
Did they? Did you know that the Brontes... Two big books like that, yeah. Did you realise the Brontes are in this book? I might have missed that bit, no. So in the inside sleeve it says, Dear reader, I married him, said the wonderful, though rather plain, Charlotte Bronte, who finally managed to bag a hubby, only to pass away a few months later, which may well happen to you if you're not careful. And indeed, our heartfelt prayer in this little book can help you not only to achieve every girl's dream of dreams, but also give hubby enough reasons to stay with you for as long as he can possibly bear it. Warmest wishes, Joan and Jerrica. Yeah, cool. All right, that's interesting, isn't it? No, it, it does. I mean, sometimes it, it kind of, you recognise the language of like teen magazines in there as well, um, especially in the, the little quizzes to find out what kind of person you are. They are quite good at capturing that. And I, I don't say this is a criticism. I just think it's, so idiosyncratic as to be a bit different from the from the two texts before because like the pictures in it are they are um they are they really are so it's a combination of chapters of advice as you say quizzes and games illustrations and then there are yeah. huge chunks of script isn't there as well you get like yeah. big bits of script uh, from Jericho talking to each yeah other. which again kind of takes you away from if if you had managed to suspend your disbelief and thought that you were reading something real that is the target of the satire i think the inclusion of the bits of script would probably divert you away from that wouldn't they yeah but i guess something else that it has in common with the other two is that they are writing in character aren't they these yeah. grotesque characters i mean just to give listeners a flavor of what the book is like can i read a little bit from chapter four yes you can read a little bit from chapter four if you like so chapter four why you have failed as a mother, the spawning of a homosexual child. We all dream of having the perfect son or daughter, but this rarely happens. As your little one grows, you may well continue to feel a profound sense of disappointment. Maybe your child is very boring or rather tubby. Maybe the eyes are too close together or it weeps all of the time. Or maybe your child stinks. Sometimes it's all of the above. And sometimes, sometimes your child may be gay. It's not so trendy to be homophobic anymore. But a lot of parents really don't like homosexuals and particularly dad may want to cajole young Tommy into heterosexuality. Time and again, parents cry, Joan, Jerrica, how did this happen? And the truth is, in almost every case, it's mum's fault. Often the gayness begins with lazy mothers who won't intercourse hubby. So busy are they trying to turn their sons into their own little lovers, jamming their nipples into the wee lad's mouth. Long past his breastfeeding days are over, only to create a deep revulsion, not just towards mum, but towards women in general. Right. Well, that's um, that's very interesting, isn't it? How's the comedy um, working there? It's just just a load of horrible homophobia, isn't it? They're just they're just sort of saying that gay people are disgusting and that it's women's fault they make them like that. Is is that not what it is? Yes, I don't I don't actually think it's just really homophobic. No, <laughs> not what I really think. The, these fictional characters are drawing on like really sort of outdated psychosexual theories about how people are, are gay or are not gay and also mixing that in with a conveniently with it with an element of mother blaming that that conveniently sits quite neatly with that idea that you know you become become gay because of things that have gone wrong in your childhood so yeah that, that's that's what they're doing but they're also there's also just gratuitous and I don't say gratuitous in a in a kind of negative way just gratuitous grotesquery in there isn't it which is what you go to Joan and Jericho for yeah I think that's a really fantastic analysis uh would you like to play a little game yes all right then okay so the game is this is on page 90 of the book what mm -hmm. type of mother are you so number one you found out you're pregnant having been trying for a long time just as you've just as you've booked a skydiving day for yourself and your fiance you're over 40 so it's a high-risk pregnancy do you a Go anyway, it was quite expensive and you can always wear two pairs of pants. B, offer your ticket to a friend for whom you've held long-term resentments and hope they die on the day. C, have an abortion. D, give the ticket to your fiancé's best male friend in a ruse to see if the high-pressure environment exposes the torrid homosexual attraction you've long suspected. Or E, stay home and have a cosy evening rubbing in your perennial butters with a bottle of Merlot and a hefty curry. Well... Well, um, gosh, that's difficult, isn't it? Oh, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one, Joan. Uh, what was the first one? Go anyway. It was quite expensive. You can always wear two pairs of pants. Well, let's assume I am the sort of person who would go skydiving in the first place, and I'm not. If I did, then I let's assume I think it's okay, and so maybe I would still do it out of all of those quite terrible yeah. <laughs> options. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't go skydiving because I'd just be afraid. 
but if I was this person, perhaps I would. Question two, you're getting married days before your due date, but your religious parents just thought you were getting fat. On the wedding day, you feel your waters break. Do you A, go ahead and give birth. You can't fight nature and it's as good a time as any to tell your parents your secret. B, tell everyone you've got food poisoning from the prawn cocktails and when baby comes out, just say it's a big bad prawn. C, have an abortion. D, get drunk and try and have sex to cover the emerging infant and if spotted, say it was one of the flower girls pushing for a threesome. E, push baby back inside and insert a little breathing straw for it, then arrange a dinner party to break the news of the birth to your folks in nine months' time. Well, I think we've got to be, uh, we've got to be realistic here, haven't we? If the, <laughs> if the baby's coming out, you can't be doing any of the rest of that stuff. So I'm just going to do the boring one and say, um, give birth anyway. We've just got one final question. Okay. You're in, you're in hospital giving birth when you pass a small stool. Uh, which you attempt to sweep away. It lands on your mother-in-law's shoe, who insisted on attending the birth. Do you A, tell her to look down and draw her own conclusions? B, tell her she has brought a poo bag into the hospital and that's very unhygienic, slapping her around the face for good measure. C, have an abortion. D, say the midwife did it and laugh. E, blame it on the baby. Blame it on the baby. Interesting. As a baby's like, for several years, like any sort of whiff around the place or dubious sound, the baby is there to be blamed, don't they? That's that's the, the main advantage. Yeah, mostly A's, mm -hmm. which means that you're rather bossy and full of yourself and the type of person people slag off behind their back. You should put mm -hmm. the baby up for adoption before it's born. Well, it's a bit late for that. Um, I, I don't <laughs> think anybody's going to want to. <laughs> to adopt um adopt those two little prawns and um, yeah no i i think i think the beginning bit's quite apt though i, I think i'm bossy and full of myself and um, i'm sure people are slagging me off behind my back as we speak interestingly if you mild spoiler for listeners if you do the quiz and answer e to everything which is the questions that's like have a big career and hope no one notices put a straw up there for the baby to breathe you get you're a good mum well done so it's all backwards isn't it oh, i've been doing everything all wrong all this time so that's Dear Joan and Jerrica, Why He Turns Away, Do's and Don'ts from Dating to Death. It's available to buy all retailers at $16.99. The priciest of all of the books, but it is the biggest, I think, isn't it? It it's is, It's the yeah. bang for your buck with that one. I think it's definitely the, uh, the chunkiest of all the books. Um, but now I think it's time to head over for a message from our sponsors, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> Yes. What's your favourite thing to look in to see what you want for Christmas? Oh, that would be the magic book. Magic book? Yeah, the, the magic book of dreams, um, or as we used to call magic it. Magic book of dreams? That's right, that's what we call that it. That sounds amazing. Magic book of dreams. So the magic book of dreams is a hefty, glossy tome uh, mm -hmm. full of all the things that you can buy from Argos. How is that a dream? And how is that magic? Is that not just a catalogue? Well, yes, it is. But the book is more magic and dreamful than it used to be. In all of the Argos adverts, it's referred to as the Magic Book of Dreams. But of course, it was cancelled in November. And Fucking cancel culture. Yeah, yeah, they cancelled the Argos catalogue because it was full of... Uh, Problems. So they cancelled the Argos catalogue. So now it is a book of dreams because you'd have to dream it because you can't get your hands on one. Right. Okay, so they won't be making any adverts that, that are about that then, I guess. Well, no, because it, Christmas is a time of dreams. So, mm -hmm. you know, a young child could imagine that they had an Argus catalogue and they could imagine that they saw a magic set in the Argus catalogue and they could imagine that they were able to put on a magic show on Christmas Day. Although they'd be unlikely to do that if their parents were Argos employees because Argos have let hundreds of their staff go following the closure of many, many Argos outlets. God, and it, uh, if you had lost your job before Christmas and then you're at home for Christmas, I think if anything could sort of make that a bit worse, it would be your kids putting on a magic show when all you want to do is sit in front of the TV and eat food. The Yeah, what could, what could make you wish you'd never wished for a Christmas, uh, family Christmas would be probably your kids putting on a show and demanding that you watch it indefinitely. Um, yeah. You look a bit like a carrot today, Joe. Why is that? Um, I am a carrot. That's that's true. And I, I'm, I'm just, oh, I'm just. Do you, do you ever get that thing where you just really want to go home? You just want to get back, don't you? And you've, Absolutely. You've been like, 
been out for ages. It's been like you know maybe pressures of work or whatever. And you just you just want to get home to your family. And yeah, that's pretty much that, that's how it is for me at the minute. But um, yeah, I don't. Do, could you give me a lift? Yes, 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 I can. Good. This is the advert about the carrot who can't wait to get eaten. Yeah, you know what else there is in that advert? What's that? Fucking hedgehog. Is there? Yeah. So this is the year of the hedgehog. Maybe, maybe it is. Um, okay. That's enough adverts, I think. Hmm. I think so. Yeah. So, um, what's are you are you looking forward to Christmas? What are you looking forward to most? Yes, I'm looking forward to Christmas. I have found it quite difficult to navigate this year mentally to know what to look forward to, to know what to worry about. I think I said in the last Christmas episode that I find Christmas quite pressurised because everybody wants it to be, there's a lot of pressure for it to be perfect. And I, and I said last year, I just wish something would go wrong. So there was no presumption that it could be perfect and we could just enjoy it for what it was. And yeah. in many ways this year, I got my Christmas wish, didn't I? Because I don't think this is the Christmas that anybody would, hope, would have hoped for. Um, but in a way, because there's a lot of potential that we could kill a lot of old people and vulnerable people by getting together and it looked for a long time like we might not get together and we can't have more than three households in a house. All of those things mean that we're just going to have to make the most of what it actually is. <laughs> One of the solutions to the pandemic Christmas would be to move Christmas later in the year, but they couldn't because if it got close to Easter, then it'd be really confusing, wouldn't it? Because it, it, you know, if it went after Christmas, he would die and then be... Re- reborn i don't know but do you know how calendars work because yes. he just didn't get crucified when he was three months old did he it was like several years later so it wouldn't matter if it was like that that's not how it works is it i just worry about the children it's confusing for the kids already isn't it it is it's all very confusing for the kids yeah what are, um, you, what are your thoughts about christmas joe um, I'm looking forward to it now, now that I know what it's going to be, like you like you say, because there was so, quite a long time when nobody really knew what, if anything, would be happening. And then, of course, once the guidelines came out and we all had to have to sort of negotiate how we feel about them and how we feel about who we can see and who who we disappoint and what we what we feel comfortable with doing in terms of keeping the people that we care about safe, but also seeing as many of the people that we care about as possible so it, it it's been a weird one hasn't it but I think that as much as I know there's like a fairly strong and popular argument that like it's not what why are we doing this for Christmas why are we changing the rules for Christmas we didn't and, and rightly noted that we didn't do this for other religious festivals and I think that's all kind of fair enough but also I think if you have if Christmas has in all of your life thus far been been meaningful to you then it, it's not going to be any the less meaningful to you this year and I suppose in a way that all the angst about like who we can see and how many people we can see and what calls we make about that it does in a maybe slightly cheesy way remind you that the point of Christmas should maybe be more about seeing people and I mean not, not hugging them but you know being proximate to that um it perhaps it's not the worst thing that the conversation has been more about that but also not the best thing that it's been about potentially killing them yeah I think that's a, a really beautiful note to end on a lovely Christmas message one other callback before we go seeing as this is our self-indulgent Christmas episode you mentioned back in the summer Back in the summer, if people can't tell, listeners, I've been listening to a tremendous amount of the Adam Brookson podcast and have accidentally absorbed his way of speaking on occasion. But uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, in the summer that when lockdown started back in March and both of your relatives came back to your home to live with you, that you said, welcome back, everyone. Welcome to shit Christmas. Yeah. Whereas this, this time, once they're both back, maybe I'll say, welcome to good lockdown. Welcome to good lockdown. Yeah, that's what I was going to do if you're going to pay that off because uh, left that plot thread dangling. Yeah, so I'll probably be the only person who remembers it and everyone else, what are you saying that for? Well, that's literally not... dozens of listeners will get satisfaction from that closure now. So. Well, the listeners aren't going to be there. No, but they're listening to this episode of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, perhaps they will. Yeah, but just to be clear, no listeners are invited to my house for Christmas lunch. But we do appreciate you. Apart from my relatives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we uh, we do appreciate your support. So I suppose should we should we wrap it up for wrap it up, yeah, yeah, wrap it up, yeah, wrap it like a Polaroid picture, yeah. (laughs) So thank you very much for listening, everyone. Thank you very much for listening, everyone.
what what if anybody wants to get in touch they want to get in touch give us a yell please do hit us up on socials uh, you can find us on twitter at social at satire no more uh, you can find us on instagram at talk about satire or you can email us at satire no more at gmail.com yes and uh, you could also leave us a review of the podcast can't you on on whatever platform you listen to it i think yeah you can leave us a rate, rate and review is on on any platform that you listen to us i think we've got one review on itunes at the moment and yeah. it's positive <laughs> we'd like more of those but yeah if you've enjoyed the podcast or if you just encountered the podcast or engaged the podcast or are aware of the podcast it's really useful for us to know that would be a great the best christmas present you could get us rather than turn up at joe's house you could just send us some feedback. Yeah, I don't think that's probably not the best Christmas present, is it? Well, that are, that are listening. I mean, I can think of things I'd prefer, but it would be nice. Be a yeah. little stocking filler, wouldn't it? Yeah. Really good. If you want to send us a stocking filler, please do give us a yell. Um, but that's all from us today, isn't it? I don't think we've got anything else to talk about. No, I don't, I don't think we have. I really hope there's going to be a screen wipe this year. Do you know if there is a Charlie Brooker screen wipe? I don't know. Okay, we'll find out. If there is, you can be damn sure we'll talk about it in the podcast. After Christmas with our, finally, with our interview, full interview with Andrew Doyle. And then our full interview with Ollie Grant. And then, fingers crossed, an interview with Victoria Pemberdine and uh, Julia Davis, if we're lucky, if they hear uh... this. I think if they hear this, we'll struggle to keep them off the podcast. But if they, if they don't hear it, we might need to sort of look at some extra steps to take. But I think, um, I think it's very unlikely that they aren't listening. Um, close friends of the pod, aren't they? But anyway, anyway. Yeah. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for all of your support all through the many episodes of this podcast. We've been going for a little while now, and it's amazing isn't it? We really appreciate all of our listeners. It's great. It's great on a platform. So (laughs) thanks for listening. Have a wonderful Christmas, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Yeah. And you know, if if you don't feel like sitting up, don't sit up. It's Christmas. Lounge back. Relax. Kick off your shoes. But do still shut up and do still eat our Do shut up because if you shout, that's aerosols, isn't it? And you'll uh, you'll kill people. So keep keep relatively quiet, but chill. Uh, Keep your mask on most of the time. But do feel free when you're sat down to take it off and eat our satire. Yes, eat it all up. Bye. Bye, listeners. Bye. in HR. If you hear a name I mention, then you better run far. Karen and Gammon talk about salmon. 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 Oh yeah.